Church. Thanks again for taking the time to check out our membership class. And this is our fourth and final installment that's going to be covering how will the church be organized. Before we get into this final class, though, I want to give you a brief overview of the process again for becoming a member. We're asking that you, first of all, listen to these four classes on these podcasts. So you're almost done with that first one. Secondly, we ask that you would fill out a member application. Thirdly, that you would turn that in to Paul Brandis or I and, and have a scheduled uh, member interview conversation with us. And then fourthly, that you would come to our first member meeting that we'll be having later this spring. And we'll let you all know exactly when we're going to have that. But ask that you come to that meeting where we will confirm one another as members for the first time. So again, that's listening to these classes, fill out an application, have a conversation with Paul and I, and then come to our first member meeting later this spring. So thanks again for checking out this final class uh, about how will the church be organized. Okay, we're going to go ahead and jump in with tonight's King's Cross membership class. This is class number four. Um, I think I've seen all of you here before, so we've been gathering now uh, for the past three weeks prior to this one, uh, exploring various questions and topics underneath the banner of what it might uh, be for us really all to take the step into membership at King's Cross Church. Uh, We're a new church plant, only 15, 16 months old, and so nobody's done this yet. So it's been a joy to take the first step uh, with all of you, and I know there's probably a few people tuning in as well. Um, We're recording this, and folks can catch up if they miss a week, or if they were unable to join on Thursdays this month, then they can watch, or they can listen as well on the podcast. Yes, feel free to uh, get some more uh, food um, if you'd like throughout the course of this. Uh, but we'll go ahead and dive in. And uh, yes, if we're, we didn't quite maybe have enough pens, so if there's some extras up here we could redistribute. Um, sorry about that. Um, but uh, yes, thank you for, for being gracious. We're missing Caleb tonight. We've already uh, prayed for him and Nicole and uh, Jeff, uh, his dad, and the rest of their family. And so... Uh, we will, so go easy on me tonight, how about that? Um, and uh, you give Caleb grace, of course, for uh, the need to be visiting family. Let's give Paul some grace for having to hold down the fort a little. How about that? Uh, and he gave me the church Bible tonight. So, wow, way to go, Caleb. Uh, so you do have a printout copy of our church constitution and bylaws. We won't go through this word for word, but we actually do walk through a good bit of this. Uh, throughout the course of this evening, and there actually is some important uh, topics to hit underneath the question of session four, how is the church organized, which I think is a good way to sort of ask that. Um, What's the organization of the church? How does it run? Who does what? Um, Why do we do it this way versus the other ways that this can happen? Uh, Different dynamics within the midst of that. So, but uh, this idea of organization, I think we can trace back as far as the early church. So as we think about the first followers of Jesus, this little tiny fledgling group, uh, after he rose from the dead, spent about a little over a month, a month and a half, 40 days on earth, appeared to over 500 of his followers in person, which is you know a lot, but not a lot too, right? Uh, and so we see the early efforts of that group, particularly after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit descends and 
Peter preaches and God really adds to their number. Um, and then it develops throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And then we see several letters that are written. What are some of the organization attempts that we see the early church undergo? What comes to mind when you think about how the early church took steps to organize themselves? Large group question. You can raise your hand or just jump in. They added deacons pretty quick. They did, yeah. There became a problem uh, around food distribution. And there was some inequity happening. And so they called deacons to serve. That's really early. Act 6 is when that happens. So that's a great example, Tom. Yeah. Other examples? Well, they did. Um, they kind of got rid of private property, right? They just distributed everything as combined all their resources and gave it to the poor. Yes, that took a bit of organization uh, even earlier than calling and uh, and putting into place for a leadership position of deacons. Uh, Mark is referencing the the sort of buying and selling of land and the redistribution of resources so that uh, the the Luke who wrote Acts can actually say none went without lack. Uh, In Acts uh, chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, there's some references to that. Well, that didn't just happen. Maybe it began organically, but that took some systematic organization. So another great example. Others? There's this moment in Acts 15, right, where uh, the, the gospel has been... Part of the way you can trace the book of Acts is the gospel breaking through barriers, um, different uh, cultural, religious... Uh, racial, ethnic barriers, just shattering them, just like running through them like a wall, like the Kool-Aid man. Remember those commercials? Kool-Aid man's busting through walls. The gospel is like crushing barriers, and there's this massive barrier that's crossed where we go from the, you know, the gospel goes from the Jews to the Gentiles. It's this massive moment in Acts 15 where the whole church gathers. It's like, well, what are we going to do about that? You know, and that is a huge moment in the early life of the church there's a, sort of an organized church meeting. There's clearly some leadership structure that's been happening. And what's fascinating is the person who has the final word is, is James, the brother of Jesus. And so there seems even to be an early shift where he had stepped into uh, some, some more leadership. And then there's organization to sort of carry out the decision. So they write a letter. They uh, sort of appoint emissaries to go out to the various places where the gospel has been reached. And they, so they're organizing. Um, Others. And they added to their um, congregations daily. Mm. Yes, they did. Yeah, they absolutely did. Added to their congregations daily. I think you could also tuck many of the New Testament letters into this category of organization, right? Uh, their early churches uh, in these different communities, often where Paul found himself on his missionary journeys, he leaves. He leaves for a variety of reasons. Uh, a lot of times he's chased out of town. Sometimes the spirit compels him to leave. Very rarely does he stay anywhere for a long period of time. But so there are letters that are sent back to address organizational problems and others as well. Um, but I think you can tuck the early church letters into here. Uh, one of the most beautiful that I see is in Acts 20. 
where Paul is traveling and he's close enough uh, to the church in Ephesus. He's not there, but he's close enough where he can call the Ephesian elders to join him at the port city that he was in at the time. And we have an extended reporting from Luke, almost certainly because he was with Paul at this time, of what happened and how uh, Paul interacted um, with the Ephesian elders. And so we see uh, the importance of leadership development and of strengthening uh, the whole church. Um, But in this moment, Paul was choosing to do that by way of strengthening the leaders of that local church. And so that's a beautiful effort. It talks about just the rich sort of uh, engagement they had with one another, even much prayer, much, much, much tears, much crying with one another as they uh, had deep love for one another. And that was one of the places he spent the longest time. Uh, he was able to stay for quite a while. So uh, any others that we want to add before we, we move into how we at King's Cross here 2,000 years later have decided to organize ourselves? Great answers. I think that the big idea point is the early church did organize. Um, I think there can sometimes be a, let's just return to the early church and uh, kind of mindset or move or there's a lot that's usually meant in that that's really good, like a simplicity and let's not get overburdened with committees or, you know, let's, let's return to sort of the, the, the organic beauty of the original church, the, of the early church. And there's a lot that I agree about in that. But I think also you can trace a through line of the, beautifully, the beautiful organic stuff that was happening and their efforts to build a few systems, to organize a little bit. Um, I don't think they were against that. And I think there were some efforts for them to organize and, uh, and yeah, build out a bit of structure and organization for a whole variety of reasons. So we have chosen to do the same, and that's a bit of what we're talking about tonight. So um, we will flip through the Constitution. So go to the bylaw page, because I'm going to read from a paragraph here, and then we'll sort of park in one topic here at the beginning of what we're going to chat about. So you want to be on page six. And your first blank, if you're following along on your guide, is something that you've heard before. It's, uh, it's how we might name our polity, which is a fancy word for church structure or church organization. We would name that, if we had to, I'd rather describe it than name it. <laughs> uh, that makes sense, right? It's always better to have a conversation or a description or uh, a discussion. But if we had to name it, we'd name it elder-led congregationalism. So that's your first blank. Elder-led congregationalism. And that's not the first time you've heard that. If you've been following along, if you uh, were here or caught up on a podcast, we discussed that a few weeks ago. But that's the first blank. And I'm on page six of the bylaws and constitution uh, document. And I'm going to read the paragraph uh, that starts at the top of that page under government, Article One, government and the elder team. So I'm going to go ahead and just read that paragraph for us. The congregation, through a group of godly men called elders, who compromise an elder team, shall govern the church. The elders are a team of men described by the biblical definition of elders, and then references to scripture passages where we find that, and they are affirmed by at least 75% of the church members. The lead pastor fulfills a dual role, serving as both a pastor and first among equals among the elder team. Authority for the governance of the church in spiritual and business matters resides in their hands. So, um, one of the things that... Oh, sorry. Uh, I'm also going to read... I think this is on six as well. Authority and responsibility. Um, 
Is that on six? Okay, thank you. Ultimate authority in the church, I'll add a however here, lies with the congregation, which is where we're pulling that combo phrase, right? Elder-led congregationalism. So ultimate authority in the church lies with the congregation. The congregation affirms each elder individually during a congregational meeting designated and led by the elder team. After the congregation affirms the elders, the elder team shall have the authority to perform all church functions on behalf of the congregation except amend the constitution and bylaws, call a lead pastor, purchase land and permanent buildings, or confirm a yearly, and confirm a yearly budget. Any member may bring a matter to the elder team by making a written request to any member of the elder team. Um, so you're already hearing, we've already talked about this, but some hopefully good measure of checks and balances. Uh, we don't, we want, again, ultimate authority rests with the congregation, but they, in a variety of ways, they have several tasks, one of which is to appoint the elders who then oversee uh, and, and provide uh, oversight to all affairs of the church, including the staff who carry out the day-to-day uh, operations and ministry of the church. So that is, and I think this is on your guide as well, the three legs of the church, and we might have said the three legs of the. It sounds a little funny, right? There's a the metaphor is the three legs of a stool. If you have a three-legged stool, if you've got three strong legs, then you've got a really great stool that's functional for a lot of different things, right? Sitting, standing, it does what a stool is supposed to do. So that's the metaphor in the image here: is that we want the three uh, legs to function. Uh, like to cause the, the church to be like that really great functioning, firing on all cylinders stool. So the three legs are the congregation, the elders, and the staff. The congregation, the elders, and the staff. The congregation is the ultimate authority in the church. Um, right, and they're the authority of the, that they, they grant authority to lead to the elders who then give the oversight and, and stewardship of the church. And we may even tuck in there, too, the oversight and high-level decision-making for the church is done by the elder team. They carry the burden of responsibility for the overall affairs of the church. We believe this to be a much more efficient and conducive, uh, efficient system and conducive for unity in the church. And they, they aren't responsible for the carrying out of the day-to-day ministry of the church, although they often are involved in some of those tasks. Um, but this will primarily be the staff and additional uh, teams or boards that the, el- the elders may choose to form uh, or uh, designate. And the staff does the day-to-day ministry and operations, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago in reference to Ephesians 4.12. At the very core of what the staff is doing is equipping the saints for the work of ministry. So then there's a kickback into the congregation. So you really can hopefully see how all three of these uh, are working together and really how they're all from one body. But we're, we're, caught, we're, we're pulling a little bit of differentiation here to, to talk about roles. Okay, so elders, congregation, staff. Three legs of a, of a functioning stool and hopefully the three components of a really healthy and functioning King's Cross Church. Now, one of the words that maybe most jumped out to you from one of those paragraphs that I read is uh, elders are a team of men. That's one of the blanks you have on the next page there, team of godly men. And this is a place we want to park for a little bit and discuss. Um, 
And hopefully this is of interest to you and you want to know what we think about this. This is often, it's important for churches to understand where they land on this conversation and to be really honest with the congregation about it and with anyone that wants to become a member. So the position that we're articulating here is often called complementarian, complementarianism, uh, complementarianism and the sort of opposite position or the other position that is uh, sort of held next to it in this conversation is called often called egalitarianism. Complementarianism and egalitarianism. If you've never heard those words, that's okay. We're about to dive a little deep into this because this really do matters. This really does matter. So, complementarian, the complementarian position holds that men and women are not identical in their roles, but instead complement one another. So you hear that in the uh, name of it, right? Complementarianism. So they complement one another in their roles. Um, and it's fair, it's a good question that might be asked, might be on your mind, and I don't know exactly where any of you might be coming on this matter, but the question of why does King's Cross affirm that the elders should be men only? And it could feel like this is a bit outdated, this is misogynistic, this is something that we should have moved past at this point. Um, and we do want to uh, layer into this several really important pieces. So the first and I, I was very careful in my language, right? Men and women are not identical in roles, but absolutely we affirm that men and women are equal and identical in their value. Uh, this is taught so clearly from the very earliest pages of Scripture and was an incredibly uh, subversive and groundbreaking thought in the moment that these words were penned. So Genesis 127, first book of the Bible, first page of your Bible, Right says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The common thought in the day was that the slave is the image of the free man. The free man is the image of the king. The king is the image of God. The way of Jesus, the way of Yahweh, the way of the God of the Bible, is that both men and women, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, black or white, everyone is created in the image of God, which means that there is inherent worth, dignity, and value, and there's a quality in that. So from an ontological perspective, who we are, good complementarians are strongest first on saying, of course, we'll, we are equal in value. But then, so that's ontologically what we are, or who we are, but from what we do, Within the church and the home, complementarians say the way we read and understand scripture is that we are complementary in those spaces. Okay, so we'll keep talking about this and unpacking this here. But the first thing you have to hear me say is that, of course, King's Cross believes that men and women are equal in value and who we are and who we're created to be. So there's no room for us to say that men have more value or a better status than women because, again, every single uh, person bears the image of God. Both equally reflect, reflect uh, God. And this shared status and value, I've, I've referenced uh, the creation narrative of Genesis 1, but this is also grounded in our redemption. Jesus didn't just die for men, right? He died for women too. And in fact, the way we see Jesus live his life towards women in a day where right, the disciples come back, uh, from getting food in the town, and what are they? They are shocked that he is speaking with a Samaritan woman. 
And it's equal parts that he was speaking with a Samaritan and a woman. So this is, this is the sort of moment in time that, that Jesus walks on earth and he is just constantly gracious and loving towards women and then goes to the cross to die for them too. So this equality in our ontology is grounded not only in creation, but also in redemption. So we can't say that this is the desire how we should organize our church because of a different status or value. Secondly, I don't believe, and we don't believe, that you can say that men only should be elders because of a different gifting or ability that is somehow inherent to men. Let's pause on that. Because I think this is unfortunately often the explanation that is given in more conservative churches that hold this position. Well, of course men are elders only. Like, men are the best leaders. Like, that's, like, men are the best leaders. So this, like, can we, we can move on, right? Like, men are the best leaders, and that's all there is to it. We really want to slow down on that. I don't think we see that in Scripture. And so it's not like men have the monopoly on wisdom. In fact, if you go to Proverbs, do you know who, uh, who wisdom is personified as? A woman. And a lot of times, actually, Proverbs 31, man, I just don't think we understand the fullness of that. A lot of times it becomes like, yeah, she's a great homemaker. But there is some industry in Proverbs 31. There is some innovation and some entrepreneurship and some really incredible things that happen in Proverbs 31. And sometimes people want to write that off. Well, it's wisdom literature. Well, so it's just kind of like a metaphor. It's not. Do you know what book comes right after Proverbs? Look at Ruth. Showing an incredibly innovative and entrepreneurial woman. Esther? Is Esther after that? What's after? Did I get that wrong? I think it's Ruth. Proverbs Ruth. Proverbs Ecclesiastes. And then, and then Song of Solomon. And then what? Ruth is way before all of that. What did I get it wrong? I got it wrong. I got it very wrong. Thank you for looking at me like I got it wrong. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Ruth is back before. Ruth is back before. Man. Oof. I look at the Old Testament again, everybody. Goodness. We talked about grace towards me, didn't we? Okay. Let's keep moving on here. Man, where did I? I swear I was in the seminary class, and we talked about the sequencing. I'm going to go look at that again, because that was, uh, that's not a good moment for me right now. Okay. So, but, women, it's personified, right, as a woman. So we can't say that men, clearly men don't have the, uh, the corner on wisdom. <laughs> that was funnier than you acted. <laughs> clearly men don't have the corner on intelligence either. That's actually in my notes here. Uh, social science studies reveal that if anything, and we probably all experience this too, women have greater emotional intelligence. Like across the board, generalizing here, there's, there's sort of a spectrum to be uh, observed within both men and women. But broadly speaking, like social science studies have observed that. And you think about what's required in leadership, a lot of times it's, it's sort of a really good emotional intelligence of the different uh, sort of settings and what's happening in, in, in different instances there. And so uh, moreover, too, think about this. It's not just that men don't have the corner on the market of things that we know make a good leader. If it was about that, if it was about, well, this is because men are gifted uh, in this way differently, then we'd expect a lot of things about giftings and skills to be part of the qualifications, but you look at those passages, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5, and there's very, very little about gifting in that. There's so much more about character. Of course, there's, uh, they must, men must possess the ability to teach is on those lists. But really, if you look at those lists, it's a character list. You see humility, uprightness, holiness, discipline, loving what is good. Um, so it, when you look at the gift, when you look at the qualifications list for elders, 
There's not a whole lot of like, hey, here's the sort of gifts and skills that the elders need. It's about character. And of course, too, we wouldn't say that men have the corner are the only ones who have good character, even though that is what we see on the qualifications list. So why then, after all of that, why then have only men be elders? Well, there's obviously a variety of institutions and organizations in our world today, and at King's Cross, we believe that we should celebrate both men and women leading in them, as both were endowed with his image and have different gifts and skills for that. But there are two institutions that are um, set up by God and given special instruction by God in his word, and that's the family and the church. And we do see, we think, the plain reading of Scripture is that in those institutions, they, uh, they have, there's some instructions from God in how they should be ordered and led, the family and the church. So for the family, in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, Colossians 3, 18 and 19, and 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, again, there is a plain reading, clean, clear organization to the home as calling men to lead by serving their wives as Christ serves the church and seeking their benefit and, and good uh, and then, in addition, for wives to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And in 1 Corinthians, speaking now of the church, 14, 1 Timothy 2, Titus 1, again, we believe that the plain reading of the text is that men are recognized as those who should be uh, leading the church in an elder uh, function, or in an elder role. Uh, nor does it seem, and this would be the egalitarian position, but to us, as we best understand Scripture, it does not seem that that uh, was written in those passages because of a temporary cultural situation. It does not, that's not the reading that it seems to us. So that would be the egalitarian position, um, but that would not be how we read those passages. Uh, but we see something a little different happening in those passages that is grounded in, in God's deeper order of creating, the creation order of God creating man first, and then woman second. And again, as I've already said, um, even as there is an ordering to how God created man first and then woman, uh, Genesis 1 also makes really clear that both men and women are created in God's image and so have the same value to him. Um, but the, when it's pulled into the New Testament, uh, there does seem to be a, a call back to the reason for this is in God's mysterious purposes in his creation order. So that is, in an essence, the reason. It's part of God's mysterious design in his creation order. Um, yes, yeah, so men are not called to leave. This is the blanks for you or dot, dot, dots. Men are not called to leave, leave because of greater gifts, skill, or character. Men are called to leave because of God's design and creation order. And one of the other words that you could write <laughs> next to kind of both of those and underline it is mystery. I think there is some mystery in the midst of this. I think there's some clarity in what we see in Scripture as we read it, but I think there's some mystery as well. Um, so let's venture maybe a couple guesses. Like what would, what is maybe within that box of mystery? Uh, one could be, one sort of guess, could be that God is creating a picture of us mirroring his self-sacrificing love. So men lead by grace in humility 
knowing that they are in that role, not because they are better, but because God, in his mysterious purposes, designed it that way. And women submit even more in humility, not because they are less, but because they know they are equal. Another possibility could be God testing our faith and obedience. Even though this is a, right, we feel this in our cultural moment. This is a, um, an important conversation. But uh, even though it might be easier to do what we want or to organize how we want and submit to who we want, we instead have an opportunity to follow his created design out of trust that God knows what's best. Um, we're going to stop for questions in a moment. And I really will do my best to answer any that you might have. Uh, but I do want to say, well, what if, what if I'm not a complementarian? What if you have a different position? How does that square with church membership? While we believe this is a vitally important conversation, and you even have to, as a church, sort of land in a position on this to be able to effectively organize yourselves, uh, we also absolutely hold that there are, and I'll use sort of this in a tongue-in-cheek, there's good people who love Jesus in the Bible that are egalitarians. We really, really believe that. And not all complementarians do, and not all egalitarians believe that there are good people who love Jesus in the Bible. On the other side, this can grow very contentious and very ugly. Uh, we believe that there are. Uh, we do not see the egalitarian position as a devaluing of Scripture, um, as a departure from Scripture. There are some complementarians that do. Um, we don't come down in that spot, and a couple weeks ago, when I ditched Caleb to go to a conference in Texas, he introduced a concept of theological triage. Uh, the need to discern what theological topics are most pressing. There's obviously, this is important, and deeply meaningful to each one of us, as each one of us is a man or a woman, right? We are carrying in who we are uh, in our genders into this moment and this conversation with all of us here. Uh, and it's pressing for us to determine how we're going to organize the church and how it will be led. But actually, from a theological triage perspective, this is not, we, we would absolutely accept the membership of someone who holds to an egalitarian position. And moreover, we are, the only thing we're going to fight about is that this is going to be a congregation where both complementarians and egalitarians can fellowship with one another. That's the only thing we'll fight for. Um, is this, and, and often, and if you are familiar with this conversation at all, that's not the case. That this becomes a dividing issue in the church, and a reason, like becomes a reason to leave a church, and we're just we're just not there uh, on that. In fact, we want there to be space created uh, for you to belong here and uh, be a member here, no matter where you land on that. So, um, to say it plainly, and I already have, you can absolutely hold to an egalitarian position and still become a member. Questions? Yes, Mike. Uh, it's not a question, just a comment. Sure. Uh, Jesus actually elevated the status of women. Hundred percent. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, the very first person yes. he showed himself to was a woman. That's right. And then what did he tell her? He said, "You go tell the other so a woman was the first missionary, wasn't she?" Yes. Yeah, I love that, Mike. Yeah, Mike says, uh, just even for the benefit of the recording, Jesus elevates the status of women. Uh, he uh, appears first to a woman and then tells her to go tell others, and so the first missionary was a woman. Absolutely. A woman preached on Easter. <laughs> the first Easter, right? Like you could fairly say that. Proclaimed the, go the good news, right? They, they preached the gospel. They proclaimed the good news that Jesus had risen from the dead. 
Um, so I think that's right. And, and we see that, actually, that truth that Jesus raised the status of women in a number of ways. In a number of ways. It's also one of the reasons, actually, that we can trust the historic the historicity of the Gospels, the historical accuracy of the Gospels, because you, if you had fabricated that, you actually would have made men your first witnesses in that time. But we just told the story as it happened, because it really happened. So it's one of the sort of historical accuracy points, in, and I think it's just beautiful. I mean, that, that scene in John where he appears to Mary Magdalene is just incredible. So thanks, Mike. Yes. Yeah, Liam. I have a non-gender related question. Fire away. Uh, we have before us a constitution and bylaws. Sure. So is this a proposed constitution which will then go through a ratification process once we have a membership? And is this only proposed bylaws? Yeah. That will then have to be ratified by the body. That is a really good question. So for the recording, Leon asked if the Constitution and bylaws that are before us is sort of fixed in place already, or if it's a proposed uh, Constitution and bylaws that then will need to be ratified by the membership. Um, there is some version of this that's already ratified because we had to have it to become a nonprofit. Um, so that was like a requirement in sort of pursuing nonprofit status. So there's some version of this that's already sort of fixed in place. But we've actually, as we've been working on this, uh, you know, tweaked things and edited things. So, um, yeah, and there would absolutely be space for feedback or questions or concerns or proposed edits. Yes? A concern isn't, isn't the Constitution. Okay. Sure. Leave it, leave it alone. Uh, article. If you look at, at the Constitution, the last paragraph, uh, Article 8, members may adopt or amend any bylaws not in conflict with the Constitution at any regular or special business Any motion to adopt or amend a bylaw must receive the majority of the President. And then we kick back, and then there is a Members may amend this constitution at any regular or special business meeting. Proposed amendments to the constitution require a person's second reading at consecutive business meetings or King uh, Cross church services. Motion to amend must be seen at least 75% of the votes cast with that. Um, I, I think we might be well served to have that same disclaimer at the end of the bylaws. Because the way the bylaws are written, without any announcement to the body, and what concerns me is the 80-20 rule. Okay? 20% of people in church do the work. 20% show up for a business meeting. So a very small, depending on what your total membership number is, a very small sure, yeah. could at a meeting without any prior notice to the body could change Bylaws. Yeah. 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 And I, I mean, we're not, we'd absolutely love to fix any potential loophole like that in the midst of it. I think, you know, uh, yeah, there, there is also a, 
part are you in part referring to sort of the low quorum number in the membership meeting section or is that a different no, no I would expect a low quorum because people are notoriously poor at attending business. Yes, that was what I'm saying yeah. is that the way it is written yeah. at this point, the way the language is that um, at our first business meeting or a special meeting called by the elders, yep. a proposal could be made to change a section of the bylaws to be different than what it does now. Yes. And, a, and the way it's written, a vote could be taken then on and, the spot. And it's and it, and it radical departure and hardly anyone was there and there was no advance notice. Sure, yeah. sure, I'm tracking so with that, you. Yeah. That, that change yeah. could then cost or cause yes. a rift with the 80% of the membership that didn't bother to attend the business meeting. Yep. And I say that from experience. Yes, yeah, I'm, I'm reading that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, well, that certainly is not our heart, but yeah, right. But but it, what you're what you're drawing out, Leon, is the importance of having these documents pretty tight. I'll use that word, um, so that you know, if hearts change or if something happens, there is protection against uh, you know any one group to somehow uh, yeah cause changes that would be yeah. Uh, cause a rift or a division or issues when there's, yeah, there's just a lot of... <coughs> Go at, ahead. At other churches that Paul and I have attended, there, um, it was pretty standard to have a two-week window. A proposed sure. change would be announced to the congregation. Yep. They would have two weeks to review the language in the proposed change, and then it would be voted on as a business meeting. There were no surprises. Yeah, no surprises is a good is a good summary of what we we want to. Obviously, we don't want to yeah surprise that. So, um, so yeah, we'll absolutely flag that as a um, yeah. That's good. Yeah, I'm seeing that at the very end on page nine is kind of where we need to do some tightening up. Good. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yes, Mark. So, Paul, yeah, just along with Leon's question, um, does the congregation have the as a congregation-driven church, would we, with the congregation, have the authority to make changes to the Bibles um, in, in the future? Yes. I mean, I think that's one of the areas that Leon is drawing attention to as needing probably a little bit of work, um, just because the way it reads right now, it could happen quickly, without notice, and with a relatively small group of people. So, yeah. Yeah. so case in point, if the if a majority of the congregation wanted to um, vote that women could become elders, in other words, taking an egalitarian uh, position, um, would that be permissible if the congregation so wished? It's a great question, Mark. Should we phone Caleb in? Yeah, you know what? I I am I might have to just say I don't know, and we may have to like return to a conversation to take a closer look at the document here um, with that specific question in uh, in view. Um, yeah, yeah. I prepared for a lot of other things. I did not prepare for the uh, the tightness of this document as it relates to changing it in the future. So and to be really honest. Um, and I know that it's really, really important for us to have this document tight in a way that we could prevent anything, but it's just so far from our heart, you know, for there to be any 
sort of issues like that. And I know it happens in churches. I know it's happened in churches. I know it has. It's why we favor a checks and balances system. And I hear your guys' heart in wanting to make sure the checks and balances are equally distributed and that we don't have uh, the ability here to sort of, yeah, have anything bad happen within uh, this space. So just to add to that, because I, I, I see some, some potential tension here and that women in the congregation are given equal rights, uh, equal power, should we say, with men. Um, even though women are not allowed to be elders, it seems like if we're congregation-led, um, you see I'm getting at? I, yeah. I, I see some tension there um, in terms of okay, women are given full authority when it comes to their, their voting rights, the yes. ability to vote. But when it comes to the leadership of elders, um, you know, we, we seem to be egalitarian in one way, but, but not in another. You know, in terms of voting rights, we, we, we appear to be egalitarian. But in terms of, of eldership, um, ruling the church through, through yeah. elders, uh, that seems to be more of a, a complementarian that sense, sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, looking back here over the Constitution, I think there is a reference to, oh my goodness, uh, to, in, that, in the Constitution, to male elders, um, or is that only in the bylaws? I know it's probably an ignorant question, but what is the difference between the Constitution and the bylaws? Yeah, yeah, I I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, Just for my clarification, are we we going to be a congregational church and we're not part of a denomination? Or we are a part of a denomination. Yeah, no, that, that question is not uh, in view at the moment. We definitely are still part of a denomination. The Fellowship of Evangelical Churches actually rather prefers like an association. Uh, the word, they don't love the word denomination, but an association of independent but uh, connected churches. So that is still very much a part of our affiliation is with the Fellowship of Evangelical Churches. So, so wouldn't they, as a... As a Yes, denomination, sure. Yep, it's easiest. Yep. um, That they have a bylaw that would be the same for all churches in that denomination? It's a great question. No, this is at this is for each local church to decide and determine. Yep. Yep. So So it makes it congregational. Well, it's more a question of within the structure of the denomination, ultimate power lays at the level of each local church to decide how they will set up and govern themselves. So, and then we've decided on a polity of elder-led congregationalism. So, yes. So are there, is there, a variety, are there other churches in our fellowship that are more egalitarian in their approach? Is that to... uh, there's freedom for that in the fellowship of evangelical churches. It's largely a complementarian denomination. So, but it's, you don't get kicked out if you adopt an egalitarian position. So. Yes, Margie. Um, back when 
when I was growing up in the church, there were not elders and deacons in the Nazarene church. Yes, different polity for Nazarenes, yes. yes. And then uh, we had changed churches and went to the Christian church, and somehow I got into it, and I was an elder. I would not want to go do that again. There's, there was a lot of conflict with the men. Even if they said that there wasn't, there wasn't going to be, there was. The women were treated less than the men, but yes, they were still supposed to be elders for the looks of it, which is pretty much what it was. And I did not, I didn't like that. But I think there, there should be elders, but I, I believe they should be men. I think God chose that a long time ago when he said the husband was to be first and the wife was made for the husband. You know, it's biblical, and I just saw too many power struggles <coughs> when women yes. were elders. You know, and that may have just been that circumstance, but it read when I read the definition of elders, we're looking out for the spiritual welfare of the congregation. Well, we should be doing that anyway. You know, as just a congregation looking to help others and to seek to help them find Christ. Yes, absolutely. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. So no, it's just, yes, you have to have people that run the business part of it, I understand. But you're also going to get into things that's not pleasant, you know, when you're dealing with different personalities. And board meetings, I hated them. I didn't even want to go to church anymore. Yeah. You know, it had gotten so bad. But uh, I think we all should be doing this anyway. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Yeah, Jim. So, Tom. Are fundamental principles through which we operate. Bylaws are specific rules. Thanks, Jim. You want, you want to take the mic? <laughs> <laughs> say it again, and I'll say it back into the mic here so we can have it in the recording. The Constitution is our fundamental principles. Fundamental principles is the Constitution. Bylaws are specific rules. Bylaws are specific rules. Thank you. That's helpful. Oh, is that a do a don't list? <laughs> no. That sounds too much like a do a don't list to me. Specific, specific rules for how we are governed and organized. Oh, okay. So, yes. Not a specific list of what is a sin and what isn't. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Um, you can kind of read through some of the sections on the elder team there. We might just kind of move forward there. Well, I'll say, no, I, I don't want to move forward. I'm tempted to. Um, but... Uh, selection, there will be a nominating committee that will assess and recommend potential elder candidates to the congregation for affirmation. The nominating committee will be selected by the church elders and be composed of church members and at least one elder. However, no more than half of the committee can be currently serving elders. Each elder candidate must be affirmed by at least 75% of the votes cast by King's Cross members. We're looking at a number on the nominating committee of probably five to nine individuals. We obviously don't have an elder team yet, and so the church staff will select the first nominating committee, which will then nominate the elders to the congregation uh, for uh, approval. Term of service, an elder will uh, serve for three years. If necessary, an elder can serve for two consecutive terms, only by unanimous agreement of the elder team and reconfirmation of 75% of the congregation. Um, we think terms of service are a good idea. It's tough when you get a really great elder and then you sort of force them to leave, um, but terms of service are good. It's a check and a balance. 
Um, and so uh, we uh, make allowance for someone to serve two consecutive terms, if that's the right thing for them, if the congregation agrees with that. Um, and uh, if, so if they serve one term and then go off, they could be nominated again just with one term in between. They serve two consecutive terms and then go off, they could still be nominated after one three-year term sort of in between that. Uh, the lead pastor, so Caleb, serves as a perpetual elder. So he does not roll off the elder team after three years. So he is kind of perpetually serves on the elder team. Uh, but that's the only staff pastor position that uh, is automatically on the elder team and serves perpetually. Um, so any, you know, like I would have to be nominated by the nominating committee to serve as an elder, just to kind of draw some distinction there. Uh, the elder team will meet as often as necessary to adequately lead the church. A quorum of more than half of its members must be present for the elder team to tra uh, transact business. Minutes of all elder team minute, uh, meetings will be taken by an appointed secretary and will be available to any church member upon request within one week after an elder team meeting. The elder team will keep the congregation informed as is appropriate within legal and ethical boundaries. The elder team in the decision-making process will make decisions in prayerful dependence on the Holy Spirit. All elder team decisions require a majority vote of the quorum. The elder team is directly accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ for all of its actions. It is also accountable to the congregation. Individual elders are accountable to the elder team and are able to be removed by a majority vote of the quorum. The elder team will be self-organizing. The various functions for which the elder team is responsible shall be delegated among the elders. Interest, training, and spiritual gifts will be considered in delegating different functions that the elder team needs to take. Questions about any of that? Yes, Teresa. If uh, one of the elder team quits... Yeah, or, resigns, yeah, sure. ...or, you know, passes away, mm. how is it... Uh, how long and how soon is another one going to be appointed? That's a really great question. We have not discussed that possibility, but it's a really good question. So for the recording and for our conversation later, uh, Teresa asked if uh, an elder resigns, quits, moves away, or passes away was another example. Uh, what's the process for how that person would be replaced? Um, that's a really good question. And how soon and... Yes, that's a really good question. Yeah, we're going to need to answer that. So, yeah. And there's not, yeah, not every, clearly not every scenario is in here. And that's a bit by design to uh, allow for some flexibility. Um, like even there's no numbers in here so that there could be adjustments or flexibility without having to um, sort of go through official processes to change constitution or bylaws. Um, so there's some things that, but there's, that's, a, that's a great question to have a kind of an answer to. So good question, Teresa. Others? Yeah, Mark. Sorry, I don't mean to dominate. No, you're good. Um, just in terms of the, the question I asked previously, in Article 8 of the Constitution, provision for bylaws, it says members may adopt or amend any bylaws not in conflict with this constitution. So the constitution says nothing about yep. um, elders being just men. Right. So it would seem by the principle yep. of Article 8 yep. that that could be changed. Yes, and I think that's also the article that Leon was pointing out because that's the article that uh, you know doesn't give enough uh, sort of teeth in terms of a timeline and advance notice and so, yes, and I think it's a great 
uh, point, Mark, that we... Yeah, go ahead, Liam. No, my point was Article 7 does... It does give... Uh, oh, sure, sure, sure. I see Article 7. Article, the similar language in Article 7 needs to be included in... That's yes. That's my point. Okay. That's what I'm saying. Is that we need to tighten Article Eight with some of the language that we have in Article Seven, and to mark specific example around the complementarian and egalitarian uh, sort of piece. It, it, I, you know, I don't know why we don't have male eldership in the Constitution. It would seem that that would provide some some level of protection that, in terms of this being uh, a position that we've adopted as a church. To organize ourselves in that manner. So, well, I got a question about yeah, right. sure. the last sentence in it. Does any motion to adopt or amend a bylaw must receive a majority vote of those present? Those last three words of those present. Don't that allow a conflict to come in because somebody couldn't be there to vote? Why can't they vote by proxy? Right, yeah, I think that's in some ways what Leon is drawing out is that you could sort of gather a, you know, kind of a small group and there's a ton of the congregation that's not present and they don't even know that's happening and it didn't get announced. And so, yes, I think we need to rewrite that, tighten that in a way that uh, either allows for proxy voting or sort of makes clear uh, what a more public and announced and an advanced process would be to amend this document. So, good question, Rocky. Okay, uh, staff and pastors uh, within sort of this. Uh, the one of the thing, one of the uh, sort of bullet threes. Even uh, or so, sorry. Even as the elder team will oversee the ministry of the church and be responsible for key decision making, as we've already said, the day-to-day ministry of the church will be carried out by the staff. Uh, so, function of staff, King's Cross Church will call and support pastors who devote their full or part-time vocation to the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. This includes teaching the Bible, training others to make disciples, and demonstrating a winsome gospel presence and proclamation. Qualifications, pastors will be men of established character who fit the biblical description for the office according to 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Peter 5, and Titus uh, as well, there's a passage in Titus. And the expectations outlined in the individually tailored job descriptions. Uh, The pastors must be in agreement with the statement of faith and credentialed through the fellowship of evangelical churches. Pastor search and selection. The elder team will be responsible to oversee the search process for new pastors. The exception would be the lead pastor, which is a power that lies with the uh, affirmation of a new lead pastor. Requires the same guidelines for those as a new uh, elder. The hiring of associate pastors does not require congregational affirmation. So um, the congregation gets ultimate affirmation if there was ever a search for a new lead pastor. Um, Wanted to mention, this circles back around to... Uh, the complementarian, egalitarian, from a staff position standpoint. Uh, in the New Testament, the term elder and pastor are used rather interchangeably, and so then all pastors uh, will be men as well at Christ's community, but uh, it is clear that not only men are gifted for ministry. Uh, we see, of course, that men and women both have the recipients of the Holy Spirit and the gifts that he distributes. So additional staff and leadership positions 
and even functions for women are critical and needed. So any ministry that is open to unordained or unlicensed unlicensed men, anything that we would allow an unordained or unlicensed man to do by our denomination, the FEC, would also be open uh, to any woman in the church. So I wanted to bring some clarity to that from the staff perspective. So, Questions on staff? Okay, how will the members be organized? Admission, any person who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord, affirms the statement of faith, is pursuing maturity in Christ, has been baptized into Jesus as a believer, and financially invests in the church, may be a member of King's Cross Church. Removal, a member may be removed from church membership if a year has passed without any record of participation in church life by either participating in a service team, a home group, or giving financially to the church. The elder team also has authority to remove a church member if their lifestyle is not consistent with the gospel and or the statement of faith. I wanted to, um, and that's not especially on the bit there about removal after a year, uh, you know, that is, that's not like a quick trigger <laughs> kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like it's not like a, well, gears up, you know, yeah, right. yeah, it's not, not at all, not at all, but just sense of like, you know, sort of broad sense of, uh, yeah, a disengagement uh, would, would allow for there to, to be removal. It would not be something we would do without an attempted conversation around that either. It wouldn't just remove a member from the roles without attempting to sort of converse with that person about that. So, um, yeah. Wanted to also have a moment here to talk about the ways that we are already expressing different congregant leadership, um, because this is an important part of how the church is organized and led. Um, We don't have a, we don't, um, we haven't called or named a formal office of deacons. Some churches will have that, right, where they'll have a, a sort of even a process to nominate deacons and vote on deacons or any variety of other uh, committees and boards. Um, we have opted for a fairly simple, although not simple so that much that I could understand it in its full, but a fairly simple structure of elders, congregation, and staff. And the work that deacon boards would do or other committees do is really already happening without using that title. Uh, so deacon and deaconesses is, a, is a, a word in the Greek that refers to, to service. And we have so many of you that are already serving and expressing leadership in your service. And so I thought that it would be important to bring some clarity to that here. Some of this Caleb has mentioned very quickly. I really want to highlight it um, because it's really amazing that it's already happening. Because uh, it's not just the staff. Uh, that is doing the work of ministry. We're already seeing the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry in service and then expressing leadership in that. Uh, So Sunday morning teams, we do have a staff member, my wife Ashley, who leads children's ministry. Um, Worship is also a staff member. Caleb leads that. But boy, doesn't he just do a great job of raising up others to lead in that space and to lead alongside of him. So there's leadership development happening from Caleb uh, to congregate leaders who are serving in that way. Uh, The tech team is Travis. Travis, raise your hand. There's Travis. So if you have questions about tech or a desire to serve in tech, Travis leads our tech team. 
Uh, our setup and teardown team, uh, amazing, amazing job by Tyler and Morgan Helms on that team. Uh, Morgan is just about getting ready to have a baby, so we're in a leadership transition on that team from Tyler and Morgan to Brady and Chandler Couture, a couple of the Couture brothers. Uh, we're going to help us take over some leadership in that team. Uh, the host team is Ashley Tassos, that's Travis's wife, and then Mary Hoover, co-lead uh, that team. Uh, and again, notice how many awesome women we have that are expressing leadership in these really substantive and important ways. Uh, so we absolutely believe in that. We see giftings for that. That was a fun moment early on when we were uh, sort of recruiting people for a launch team and trying to figure out who would help us lead these Sunday morning teams. It was like, well, man, who would you, I mean, hosting, welcoming, Ashley and Mary, let's put the two of them together. Ditch Travis and Tony, right? I mean, for that, right? Let's just put the two of them together on that team. But from a gift standpoint, holy cow, uh, just amazing to see them do that. And, of course, then we talk Travis and Tony into leading in other ways because uh, Tony also leads our finance team. We made him raise his hand uh, last week when we talked about the expectation of members to be financially giving. Uh, we want you to know, hey, we've got a congregant who expresses incredible – he runs our QuickBooks. Like he got QuickBooks and took a tutorial and learned QuickBooks to be able to do that for our church. It's incredible. Runs the reports, gave you all your tax-exempt giving stuff at the end of this year. I mean, he is on it. Uh, every month, I mean, one or two days after the month ends, he sends a sort of financial uh, report uh, to staff and the rest of the finance team. I mean, within a couple days. It's incredible. Um, and so he's doing really great work on that and is absolutely willing to be, he wants to be open and transparent if you have questions about our finances. finances. So Tony is doing that. Connect team is Eric and Risa. So Eric and Risa right here lead our Connect team. Um, so they do an awesome job organizing that and leading that. Prayer is Kyler and Lauren Pritchard right here. So you guys can go ahead and raise your hands. Just want to make sure, again, with so many congregants in the room who are already leading. And then we have awesome Sunday service hosts. So it's not just Caleb and I that do the upfront speaking. Others have that gift as well. And so we've asked Eric Wenzel to do that. And then you've also seen Ashley Tassone do that and Stephanie Moncada uh, do that at different points and kind of host the service and welcome people and do announcements and lead prayers. Um, we, we think people are gifted for that. So we want to invite them into those spaces. We also have home groups, which is an incredible uh, place of congregant leadership and service. So there's a lot of deacon-type functions that happen within home groups. Uh, and at a, not even just at the leadership level, I know you as home group members, those of you that are participants in home groups, do a lot of that serving and caring for one another, but the leaders absolutely do that as well. So Roy and Mickey Milhouse, Brett and Michaela Couture, those two couples co-lead uh, a college student group. Um, myself and Ashley and then Eric and Risa co-lead a home group. Jim and Sue Johnson with Mary and Tony Hoover uh, co-lead a home group. And then Caleb and Nicole with Darren and Barb co-lead a home group. And so we have many congregants who are already stepping into leadership in those ways. And then there's Beyond Sunday Mornings and Home Groups. We have a meal team uh, that Ashley has been handing off to Nancy Foreman, and they're kind of still working together. Uh, so the meal team is, is being led now by Nancy, and uh, so congregate leadership expressed in that way, which is really exciting. It's a really important team. Uh, we have the thrift store team. Um, I think we'd maybe still call, I don't know, Caleb the leader of that, but there's tons of you that are involved in the engagement of that team. Uh, and so that people that go and serve with regularity uh, in that important uh, institution and business in uh, Rice County and in here at Alliance. The women's Bible study, of course, I, I thought about the congregate leadership expressed there. 
with Sue and Debbie, Sue Johnson and Debbie Novak, um, providing awesome leadership there. And there's more to come. We have other ideas and hopes and dreams for ways in which we could uh, continue to organize. We don't want to like team ourselves to death, right? But there is good work to be done, and we believe that we're better together when we do it. Uh, you know, we want to go together on this work, and so that's why we love teams. Uh, and I like teams too. I mean, I'm kind of a big fan of like ad hoc teams that don't have to exist into perpetuity. They can kind of come together for a mission and accomplish that mission and then celebrate the mission and cool, right? So we'll do a lot of that too in this time where it's good to have perpetual things that go on. Um, but there's more to come and more needs to meet and more ways to serve. And uh, we will constantly be, be calling congregants into that work because it's part of what it is. It's the center of what it is, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. So questions about any of that in terms of organization, how we're trying to invite people into leadership and, and uh, yeah, work on the various aspects of the church. I've got a question on uh, 4-2 removal. Yes. It says, the elder team also has authority to remove a church member if their lifestyle is not consistent with the gospel and statement of faith. That's it just seems strange to me. Looks to me like that would cause animosity within a community. Yeah. Uh, and I've never known churches to have a standard for kicking someone out of the church unless it was way back in Boston years ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So that's a question that Rocky is bringing about so church discipline and church removal, which is really good. Um, we do see a uh, very pretty clear biblical grounds for this in 1 Corinthians 5. Um, so again, I'm talking about the New Testament church, so that's even way back farther before what you were referencing, Rocky. Um, church discipline is really complicated. Part of why church discipline was really effective in the early church is that there was no other church to go to. So there's a clear patterning from Paul in that letter that the aim of church discipline and removal from the body is for the hope of restoration. By being cut off from the fellowship and unity and oneness, that there might be a realization of uh, abhorrent sin that was happening in this person's life, and that then that could lead to repentance and a restoration back into the body. Um, because there was only, there wasn't like First Baptist Church in Corinth, Second Presbyterian Church in Corinth, the Nazarene Church in Corinth, the First Christian Church in Corinth, the FEC Church in Corinth. Um, there was one church in Corinth. You getting me? So a lot of times what happens now with church discipline, right, if a church enacts that, that person gets really mad and just goes to the church down the street and says a lot of bad things about the church that they got disciplined in. So that's only one of the many reasons why church discipline is complicated. Uh, and yet, it's also a pretty clear patterning in Scripture, and it's, not, it's something that we wanted to uh, you know, sort of have a pathway available, um, because we do see it scripturally, and I think there are probably ways to walk it out in a process that, and again, hear my heart in this, I don't, I don't think you do, I hope you do, I hope all of you do, that the heart would be, and you use the term, that seems like that would lead to animosity, 
boy, I just really hope that if we ever had to do that, if the elders ever had to do that, that we would conduct that process in a way that actually wouldn't create animosity. That would be the aim. Uh, that would be the aim. So, but it's complicated. For You're sure. talking about members. Yeah. You're not talking about people that just come to church. Oh yeah, no, I'm talking about elders. Yeah, yeah. just just. I mean, sometimes talking about members. Yeah. Yeah, just. I'm just members. talking about members. Yeah. Yes, because that's the one of the yeah right. That's yes, only members, not attendees that are not members. Great clar- clar- clarification, Margie. Yeah. Well, it, it, the only reason that I asked it, uh, I got this question in my mind: What would Jesus do? He did. No, I'm not talking about what he did to the gamblers and the money changers and all that, Mark. Okay. But I was just wondering, you know, uh, did Jesus run people away from him or did he pull them in and change change the way they thought? If they become a member, they've already read this and acknowledged that if this happens, this is, you know, you're going to be asked to leave, you know, because you're portraying Christ. Yeah. Well, I didn't mean to make it a big thing. I just asked a question. Yeah, it's a good question. No, it's a good question. It absolutely is. And it's, it's something that we would handle with the utmost sensitivity and care uh, in the midst of that process because we absolutely see Jesus... Uh, drawing people in, um, 100%. Um, but he also, you know, spoke truth, and he did that in love, and he, uh, you know, sort of had no um, sort of uh, he he minced no words against uh, sin and against rebellion of God in His ways, and so, um, you know, we're that's that's more what we're sort of we're in that arena, and it's really in a a sort of spot of. Um, what was happening in Corinth was a really abhorrent sin that was being celebrated. And so it's even more than just uh, sort of rebellion against God and his ways. It's the celebration of that and the embrace of that uh, and the sort of like just flaunting disregard uh, for sort of the pathway of sort of the Holy Spirit-empowered life that pursues um, a higher standard and pursues a sort of excellence and virtues and holiness and purity and uh, that was not happening and beyond it not happening it was being embraced and celebrated and so there's harsh words uh, in there's strong words in the midst of that in a, in a process so that's kind of what that is in reference to but that's something to take that we would take lightly and to Margie's point it is only uh, only the members, so not not sort of attendees. So people that have gone through this process and have had a chance to ask questions, have understood hopefully in the fullness of what we're getting at in the specifics and sort of where our heart is, um, yeah, it would only be members. So, good. Okay, as we finish up, um, annual meetings, King's Cross will have at least one scheduled business meeting annually. The elder team must announce the annual meeting time, date, and place during regular scheduled services on two successive Sundays that precede the meeting. Uh, special meetings, the elder team may call special meetings as necessary. The elder team must announce the special meeting date and time and place during the regularly scheduled services at least one Sunday and preferably two that precedes the meeting. Might need to tighten that a little bit. Uh, quorum is low. We talked about that, and 
uh, already is a, because, boy, if you gather to approve the budget and you don't get a quorum, that's a bad day. you got to come back and do it again. And so the quorum is 10%. We discussed whether it should be even a little higher than that. We're open to your feedback or questions on that. So, yeah, it could be. I mean, six of us <laughs> uh, just got together and changed everything. <laughs> Throw it out. Caleb's Bazaar. Okay, voting. The elder team will have the authority to decide in business meetings whether voting will be by show of hands, absentee, so Rocky, your question about by proxy or absentee, uh, paper ballot or other appropriate methods, so giving the elders uh, the freedom to determine how voting can happen. Um, and this is Article 5. Discipline is even uh, fleshes out a bit more um, that line about removal uh, there. So... Just wanted to give one quick clarifier that we will be voting on and affirming this constitution and bylaws at our first member meeting. Uh, so we will be making some edits and changes before then that we will uh, make known to you all. And if you have any questions or things that you think should be added, we'd love to hear from you. You can either email me at caleb at kingscrosslines.org or just chat with me when we have your member interview. So again, we'd love to hear more from you and we'll be confirming this constitution and the bylaws at our first member meeting. So thanks again, everybody.